It's very easy to find ourselves in a pattern in which we see and approach our Christian lives, our faith, as one activity among many. One thing that occupies part of our life and is only marginally related to everything else. What I'm getting at is a, a little easier maybe to wrap our minds around, to understand if we think about uh, life in terms of our calendar. If you have a calendar on your phone, wave it at me. Anybody? Yeah, a couple, a few folks, right? Some people maybe didn't bring their phone to church, which is probably commendable, so there you go. My life was chaos before I had an electronic calendar. Uh, before I had an electronic calendar, I, I had sticky notes. I had a day runner, but I always forgot it. And never had the thing with me. It was left on a desk or a chest of drawers or something like that. Um, and so I'd write appointments on sticky notes and put them on the dashboard of the car, but the air conditioner would blow them away. And it was just a, it was a disaster, and I was always forgetting about things. And then um, smartphones came. And my calendar is right there. You probably can't see that. But it just I look at it, and the next thing is right there in front of me all the time. And we're addicted to our phones. All right. Always looking at them, so it's not like losing a sticky note. If we think of life in terms of our calendar, and we think of the activities on our calendar, then it gives us a framework for evaluating how we approach Christianity and life and faith. Right? If church and discipleship and the Great Commission is one thing on my calendar... Sunday morning, maybe Wednesday afternoon, maybe a midweek Bible study, and I do that, and I'm there, and it's great, absolutely, it's great to be at those things, but if they're just kind of one thing on the calendar, alongside everything else on the calendar, and maybe they're pretty high on the list of, because we, we prioritize our calendars, don't we? <laughs> we prioritize, there are things that are on the calendar, but if we don't make it, well, you know, that's a, next, we'll catch it next time. And there are things on there that we never miss. And so if, if we approach the life of faith as one activity among many, then that should be a warning for us, shouldn't it? A red flag if our walk with Jesus expressed in community with the followers of Jesus is one thing on a list of dozens of things. Appointments, tournaments, interviews, staff meetings, board meetings, whatever. The reason it's dangerous or high risk is that our attitude towards church, faith, discipleship, pick your favorite Christian word there, correlates, or probably correlates, with our understanding of what Jesus wants to do in us and through us. Think of salvation in terms of a spectrum. On one end, you have the least thing that Jesus wants to do in you, in us, the minimal thing. On the other hand, we've got the most he wants to do, and somewhere in between are degrees of things he wants to do in all of us. On that 
minimal side is forgiveness, right? The first thing the Lord wants to do is forgive us our sins and reconcile us to God. That's the first thing. A lot of times we sort of treat it as the only thing, though, don't we? Well, my sins are forgiven. I'm good. I can just kind of go on with my life. That's what we call fire insurance. Anybody ever heard of that one? (laughs) Salvation is fire insurance. I got forgiven, and now I can get on with everything else I got to do because me and God, we're good. I maybe haven't darkened the doors of the church in 20 years, but my sins are forgiven, so I'm good. What makes us think that? It's a minimalist approach to what the Lord Jesus Christ wants to do in us, isn't it? On the other side of the spectrum, there's a maximum approach (laughs) that suggests the Lord wants to do more than just forgive our sins. He actually wants to begin reorienting us, changing our perception, our perspectives, our just the way we see the world so that everything becomes consistent and comprehensive, oriented towards Jesus and what he wants to do. And if we go back to the calendar app on the phone thing, we understand that that minimalist side of the spectrum correlates to faith as an activity. Well, we got something at church this week. We haven't been lately. Let's try to catch one. (laughs) It's an activity among other things. Jesus forgave us, so we probably ought to show up occasionally. On the other side is that maximalist piece where the Lord wants to comprehensively overhaul our lives, and in that instance, Christianity isn't one activity, it's the calendar. And all the other activities are prioritized in relation to an overall worldview, an overall orientation, an overall sense of the ongoing mission of God in us and through us. So the question for us is, is is my faith an activity on my calendar or is it life as a whole with my calendar uh, portraying my whole life? Which one for us? In Philippians 2, 1 through 18, Paul offers the maximum vision to the Philippians and to us. This thoroughgoing, complete renovation of everything in us for the glory of God, the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the good of the church and the world. For Paul, and he's going to, this maximalist vision is summed up in this phrase, the mind of Christ. And for Paul, the mind of Christ is not a some of the time activity, it's an all of the time orientation. And kind of hold on to that. It's the bottom line for our reflections today. The mind of Christ is not a some-of-the-time activity. It's an all-of-the-time orientation. And you begin to get a sense of this when you read through the text and you get down to chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. When Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Some translations throw in vain, vain conceit, because conceit isn't bad enough. It's vain conceit. It's really, really, really... Just get an idea for this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And we're tempted to just kind of read through that because he's about to give this really spectacular uh, hymn story of Jesus, and we love that, and and we want to read it and just give thanks to God for what the Lord has done and his self-giving love. But we don't need to skip over the vision that Paul gives for the church. And the vision he gives for the church leaves no room for activities that are not oriented toward Jesus. 
in Jesus, around Jesus. Read it again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Sometimes we're tempted to put an, the word only in there. <laughs> look not only to your own interests. And we like that because it sh- kind of gives us some space. Me time. Where I can kind of put everything else on the shelf and step back and just kind of attend to what I want to attend to. But that's not what he says, is it? He doesn't say, look to your interest 25% of the time and other people's interest 75% of the time, because if you give the other-oriented love out there at least a majority, then, you know, you're, you're doing okay. Right? For Paul, there's this comprehensive whole-life orientation where we're not sort of being motivated out of selfish gain. That doesn't mean we don't look after uh, ourselves spiritually, emotionally. Um, it just, what, what he's getting at is, are we pursuing our own agendas and entertainments? Right? And the context helps here because there's a conflict in Philippi. By the time we get to chapter 4, we'll have talked about this a fair bit. But we only find out some of the details of the conflict in chapter 4, verse 2. You can flip over there if you want, put a little star by it maybe. Paul says, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I ask you also, my loyal companion, whoever that is, help these women, for they've struggled beside me in the work of the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So apparently, there are these two uh, two ladies who are leaders in the church, Paul calls them co-workers in the gospel, and they're having a disagreement about something. We don't know what it is. We don't know how significant it is. Apparently, it's important for Paul to name names. <laughs> if you ever had a preacher who named names, you know how serious it is when that starts happening. If you ever get called out from the pulpit, because that's what happens, right? He writes this letter, and somebody's going to read it to the church in Philippi. They're going to stand up and just read through it. And he's actually doing the pastor a favor because Paul's doing the calling out and the pastor doesn't have to. But imagine how stunning it is. They're just kind of reading through this letter and everybody's sitting around. It's getting towards the end. You've got all this good stuff in there. And all of a sudden he starts naming names. <laughs> I urge you, Odia and Syntyche, to be of one mind. Whatever this conflict is that has potential to create division and faction in the church, whatever agenda you're pursuing, whatever thing you're after, stop it, he says. Be of one mind. And that be of one mind is the exact same idea that he has in the passage we just read. If there's any encouragement in Christ, consolation from love, sharing in the Spirit, compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind. So he's paving the way here for the conflict resolution that's going to come two chapters later, isn't he? He's got to set it up before he gets to that. But the thing he's after is he wants the folks who are involved in this disagreement, and there's probably, you know, any, seldom is a disagreement in church limited to two people. <laughs> you got ringleaders, right? They're the ringleaders, and they've probably got folks lining up on each side. And so Paul is inviting them and everyone sort of claiming their allegiances to stop looking to their own interests. Stop looking to their own agenda. Stop making the church the place where they kind of play out their thing. And he is inviting them to this 
thoroughgoing, complete surrender so that their whole being is oriented towards the Lord Jesus Christ in love, in commitment, and surrender, and toward one another in love and commitment and mutual surrender. Right? It's all the way across. There's no bit of them that's left out. He doesn't say, look, give the church your best except for the, you know, you get a few minutes a week to do do what you want to do. He wants them, and remember the church is the context here. This isn't like my individual walk with Jesus. He's dealing with a community. And he's talking about community unity. And it involves this 100% commitment. It's not even a 100% commitment. It's bigger than that, isn't it? It's a reorientation of my whole life for what God wants to do through his people in the world. Because they can't do what God wants to do through them if they're not all in. Can they? If they're holding something back, they're going to miss out on something God wants to do through them. And so he is, Paul is calling them to this all-of-the-time orientation. Look, not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. It's thoroughgoing. It's complete. It's all the way. I'm not sort of saving room for my self-focus. Reformer Martin Luther once described sin as a human heart curved in on itself. Charles Wesley called it our bent to sin in one of his hymns. And what we see here is Paul taking that inward curvature, looking to my own interests, my own agenda, my own sort of pet, pet projects, and having that, that, that self-orientation curved out in love for God and others community, the world. And so there's this heart orientation through which everything else is organized. And that's what he's after. It's comprehensive and it's got two features. One is self-giving love and one is other-oriented love. So there's that removal of self that's replaced with love for the other. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, removal of self, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Defer. For the good of the community, don't drive your pet agenda, he tells them. Let each of you look not to your own interests, right? Self-giving, self-sacrificing, but to the interests of others, other-oriented. That's the theme. It's parallel in those two verses, isn't it? He kind of says it in the same thing in two different ways. He repeats himself, and if you're a teacher, you know when teachers start repeating themselves, it's probably going to be on the test. Not to your own interest, interest of others. Not to your own interest, interests of others. And we're tempted to think, Paul, that's a great idea. It's nice in theory, but is it realistic? I mean, what would it look like for a human being to actually be completely and totally heart overflowing, not with selfish interest, but other-oriented love? I mean, have we ever met someone like that? Don't we know how deep our self-oriented thing goes? Come on, Paul. But Paul is a practical theologian, and he's a pastor, and he anticipates the objection. And he brings uh, what I call the Jesus card. (laughs) He plays the Jesus card. 
You want to see a human being who's completely other-oriented and completely self-giving? Look at Jesus. And that's the point here, isn't it? Jesus isn't sort of being God all over the place in his other-oriented love. Paul's point in what he's about to say, beginning in verse 5, is that this is what human life was designed to be. Let's read it. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. So there's the comparison, right? Whatever it is God wants to do in individual Christians and in the church as a whole, you see it in Jesus, right? It's not that, well, Jesus was God, Jesus is God, but that's not an excuse for him <laughs> to be better than everyone else, right? Or it's not an excuse for us to not live up to his standard, okay? Because we kind of, you know, it's so, like, it's very typical, especially... Well, sure, Jesus never sinned. He's God after all, right? But the point the New Testament tries to make over and over and over again in the Gospels and in the Epistles and all over is that he's fully human. And if you want to know what God's design for human life looks like, look at Jesus. That's the point, Paul. So let the, whatever mind is in Jesus, and the word for mind here in Paul is not just kind of something that happens in your head. It's your whole orient. It's your whole being. It's my whole life disposition it's my character right so let the character of christ be yours let the disposition of christ be yours let the the passion of christ the orientation of christ his full being is supposed to define your life as a follower and as a community so let the same mind be in you that was in christ jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. So yes, Jesus is God. They share essential power, goodness, glory, majesty, infinity, all the big infinite qualities of God. Jesus participates in that. He's there. Jesus is equal with God. The thing about Jesus is he doesn't take that supreme status because there is no higher status than equality with the infinite creator. He doesn't take that supreme status as something to exploit, right? Because, and we know what that looks like, don't we? Every time some CEO makes off with everybody's retirement, <laughs> we know what it looks like when somebody with a lot of status exploits their position to hurt other people. Jesus doesn't do that. He has the status, he has the power, he has the authority, but he doesn't use the status, power, and authority for his own self-service. Look not to your own interests. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Look at Jesus. Though he's in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. He didn't take advantage of his position. Instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. There's this lovely Charles Wesley hymn where Wesley says he emptied himself of all but love. And he's got this idea in mind from Philippians of Jesus who has just poured his life out. There is, he has nothing held by. He's not going, well, what about, what if it hurts? And what if, I, what if it doesn't work out the way where it's supposed to work out? And what if, you know, he, there's no what ifs for Jesus. He's all in, isn't he? 
He's not sort of saving room. He's not 99% committed to the cross and 1% kind of, well, let's see what happens. Maybe I need to hedge my bets and figure something else out. No, he is 100% all in. He does nothing out of selfish ambition. He's not looking to preserve himself. He's not looking to hold up himself. He's not looking to advance his agenda. He trusts his father completely that his father will do what is right, and he is motivated to do the work of redemption for us with no, you don't go to a cross because you have your agenda on the plate, on the table in front of you. You don't go to the cross because you're hedging your bets. You don't go to the cross because Christianity is an activity, one among many. You only give everything, you only sacrifice your whole life if it's your whole life orientation. He emptied himself as an expression of his other-oriented, self-giving, self-sacrificing love. And Paul says that's God's design for all of us. Let the same mind, character, disposition, orientation be in you that was in Christ Jesus who had the highest status in the universe but didn't take advantage of that or exploit it didn't look for the we all like the perks right if a job comes with perks that makes it that much more desirable or friendships with you know, whatever perks are great Jesus isn't in it for the perks friends <laughs> he's in it for us and he's in it for his father He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And so there it is. At the heart of the vision, Paul insists, this is what God's design for human life looks like. It's not some far-off vision that we can kind of aspire to, but we know we'll never actually get there. This is God's vision for human life. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, he was born in human likeness, and if that's not enough, he'll say it again. Born in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the thing you need to know about death on a cross in the ancient world is that it's ultimate, it's ultimate shame. In the ancient world, the biggest value was honor. Right? I don't know what our biggest value is. Maybe, maybe we should individualism I mean I don't know some, we've got we've got some different kind of cultural values floating around be your own person um, the American dream maybe something like that Jesus is in his world the major value is honor and the well-to-do folks had this kind of list of offices and if you wanted to get to the highest place of honor you kind of you'd you'd take a turn in this job and then you would take a turn in that job and you kind of work your way up this if you were a uh, in the lower strata of society, for, there was no way to work your way up to anything. But amongst that, you know, the one percent, <laughs> uh, amongst that kind of higher strata of folks, they had certain offices, and you kind of be in charge of that for a little bit. And maybe if you put a monument up to the emperor in this city, you'll get you a little bit more honor, and you know you kind of uh, build an aqueduct system for the city that gets you a little bit more honor, and that's the primary thing, and you can kind of notch it up. The greatest shame. 
was having your body hung on a piece of wood outside the city and having the birds eat your eyes out and pluck your skin off for a few days until you suffocate to death. Paul has taken the value system of his world, of the Roman Empire, of our world, of everything, and turned them on their head. He had the highest status in the universe, and he became a slave. And not just that, he was obedient. And not just that, he was obedient to death. And he did it so that we could be redeemed. He did it because his heart was filled with self-giving, self-sacrificial, other-oriented love for us. Because we couldn't do this for ourselves. We couldn't... uh, purchase our own redemption. We couldn't pull ourselves by up, our, up our own bootstraps. We couldn't climb the ladder of honor to God and have any sort of worth that avails before Him that is inherent in us. We don't have that. He has all of it, and He sacrificed all of it so that we could participate in it. And He didn't do it because it was just sort of one thing He had on His calendar this week. <laughs> I got a meeting on Monday, uh, I got a lunch deal on Tuesday, Last Supper Thursday, cross on Friday. It's not everything for Jesus is driving at this self-giving love. And Paul says to the Philippians, and he says to us, that's what your life together should look like. And that is hard to hear. Because we would very, very, very much prefer a version of Christianity that lets Jesus be Lord most of the time and us be Lord some of the time. Especially on football weekends. (laughs) Or if you're not a football fan, put your favorite hobby in there. We want that. We want We want the freedom to be able to go and do whatever we want. That's how we define freedom, isn't it? You can do what you want. (laughs) As long as you don't hurt somebody else, you can do whatever you want. But in the New Testament, that's not freedom. Honestly, it's death. (laughs) In the New Testament, freedom isn't freedom to do what you want to do. It's freedom to embody the self-giving love of Jesus. It's not freedom to do what you want to do. It's freedom to do what you ought to do. And there's a massive, massive, massive difference. Jesus embodies this thing we read in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Jesus embodies that. Verse 4, let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Jesus embodies that. And that, and he embodies it as a human being born of a woman, died on a cross, raised bodily from the dead, so that when uh, he comes out of the tomb, Luke tells us his disciples who think he's a ghost or something, he says, no, flesh and bone, brothers, flesh and bone, real, live, fully human being. Therefore, God also highly exalted him 
and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have a far too small vision of the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have too small a vision of the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. If my vision of the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ was accurate, I wouldn't lose it with my kids from time to time. Right? If I had a an accurate conception and experience of the stunning, magnificent glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, I would not put my interests above my wife's interests. Ever. Or yours. And the next time I do something to frustrate you, you can just remember, he needs a better vision of Jesus. <laughs> a bigger vision of Jesus. <laughs> but that's what's going on here, isn't it? The Philippians need to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is not just Lord on Sunday morning at 8.30 or 11 o'clock. He's Lord all the time. And if there are things in our life that keep us from acknowledging his lordship and and offering our worship to Him, not just on Sundays, not just on a Wednesday or maybe on a Monday morning, but 24-7, my whole life is oriented toward the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And if there are things that distract me from that, whatever they are, I'm not where I need to be. And it's not just a problem for me, it's a problem for my kids, problem for my family, problem for the church, problem for the people who are under my pastoral leadership. I need an increasingly sufficient and accurate vision of the glory and splendor and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ because if I can see Him for as He actually is, if I can see Him for all of His majesty, there will never be a moment where my heart is not overflowing with love for Him. That's what it's about. If we see the sacrifice that He made for us and if we see the glory that He has now and the sheer beauty of His scarred body glorified at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, if we, could, if we could just envision that when we're beginning to lose our temper or when we're deciding to prioritize some other schedule over what Jesus has called us to do and who he's called us to be. If I could just remember his splendor, I would fall on my face and give him everything I've got and I wouldn't be distracted by the billion other things in life that try to get my attention away from him. Everything depends. Everything depends on having our whole life oriented toward the vision of the sacrificial, self-giving love of Jesus exalted and enthroned with the name that's above every name. 
And if we come at life where our faith is just one activity on a long list, we're not even close. And I'll tell you straight up, the guy with a calendar rolling across the front of his phone, it's a daily thing for me. When I get up in the morning, am I going to be, I got some emails to check. <laughs> you know, I'm supposed to be playing ball with my kids, but somebody flipped, just texted me. <laughs> or somebody, right? Hang on, let me, you know, I mean, do the people who need to see the self-giving love of Jesus in me, do they see it? <laughs> Is it overflowing? And if it's not, it's because I haven't yet, or in this moment at least, maybe I saw it last week, but I've gone and started having some self-oriented self-love, <laughs> and I need that fresh vision. I need the Lord to show up in my heart and take that self-interest away. It's tough, friends. Let me, I mean... <laughs> I had a conversation with a, a guy, I don't know, a year or two, year and a half ago. We were talking about being a dad. And, uh, and, and this will resonate. I, I imagine that this will resonate with a lot of you. We were talking about how important it is, and I just lived across the street from the church, so I didn't have as much time as he did. He had a 15-minute commute. We were talking about how important it is to use that time from when we walk out of the office before we walk in the door of our home to get our heart oriented toward our families. Because if I walk out of the office and, man, it's tired and I've been in a meeting all afternoon or I've been working on my sermon and I'm just, my, my brain is spent and I just don't have any energy left or, or um, maybe <laughs> there's some people having got a Uodia and a Sintiki somewhere, and they're having a conflict, and it's got to be resolved, and I'm just worn out, and I get home, I just want to flop down on the couch and turn on the Braves or something like that, get lost on Facebook or something. I just, just let me decompress. I don't have time to be thinking about dinner and kids and bath and homework, all the stuff. I just, I'm, I just need some if I don't use that little 15 minutes before I leave, I don't, I don't even have 15 seconds to get home now, <laughs> right? So if I'm not thinking, you know, 4.30, 4.45, you know, 5 o'clock, am I going to, will my kids see other-oriented, self-giving love of Jesus in my heart when I get home in a few minutes? Will my wife see the other-oriented, self-giving love of Jesus in my life when I get home in a few minutes? Or will I just go collapse in my chair and do my thing? I need a big vision of who Jesus is. I need to see him enthroned on the, on the throne of heaven with scars in his hands to remind me that he held nothing back. And that my walk with him is not an activity that ends at 5 o'clock in the afternoon because I work at a church and I can just go home and that's... My family needs to know that the mind of Christ is an all-of-the-time orientation in dad. Because here's the thing, friends. If I give my attention to other things and don't approach them with a life characterized by the mind of Christ, 
they will figure out very quickly who my gods are. You ever think about that, friends? Our kids know who our gods are. Like, what are you talking about, preacher? Our kids know where we put our energy. They know where we spend our money. They know how we use our time. And if all my time is spent on that phone, texting this committee person or DS or running off to do this, that, or the, you know, this appointment or that meeting, my time is spent just watching TV. <laughs> When they want to show me the picture they've just drawn about of our family. If I give them every last thing they want, they will know who our my gods are. But if I come to them with a life oriented toward the mind of Christ. And yeah, maybe they do want the latest gadget, but maybe we need to think about are we using our resources in the best way to honor God? Not that we can't have some fun, nifty stuff, but maybe let's wait and maybe let's take a break from a new <laughs> tablet or computer or whatever and let's give that money to the mission this time. Maybe let's make a habit of that. See what the Lord will do with it. Maybe when we're on vacation, <laughs> we could be tempted to take a Sunday off because, after all, I work at church. <laughs> or maybe the kids need to see that even when we're on vacation, we worship the Lord Jesus Christ because it's not a job, it's life. Our kids know who our gods are. Our kids know whether our God is Lake Martin or whatever lake we go to or the beach or the game or the tournament or jobs or money or TV or baseball, whatever it is. And you know, and I, <laughs> most of this wasn't in my notes, but I'm going to say it anyway. Patrick loves to watch the Braves. And I enjoy watching it too. But it's very, very, very clear to me that I'm in a position at 7 o'clock every night of the week, every night, because they it's not like football. Once a week, they play all the time. <laughs> I mean, if you watched it all, you'd have what, three hours a night, five days. That's 15 hours of your week right there. Am I going to portray honoring and worshiping Jesus for 15 hours a week to my kids? And if I don't, he knows who my God is. And guess who he'll worship? Freddie Freeman or somebody. The mind of Christ is not a some-of-the-time activity. It's an all-of-the-time orientation. And I pray often that the Lord 
will help me to instill that in my children. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 12, 13, 14, it says, work it out. He doesn't say work your salvation, not earn it. He says work out your salvation, work out the implications of your salvation. And we've done a lot of that already, but it's worth hearing what Paul has to say. Therefore, my beloved, verse 12, just as you've always obeyed me, not only in my, pre not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work, and we're, we've done some fear and trembling, I think, today, haven't we? I tremble when I think about these things. Work out your own salvation, the implications of salvation. Work out what it looks like for the mind of Christ to permeate every moment of your life. Work it out. Think about it. Reflect on it. Deal with it. Do it. Because God is at work in you. And that's the key, friends. We couldn't, we couldn't have our lives reoriented around Jesus if God is not, by His Spirit, doing the work in us. We just go flop on the couch with our phones. Or watch the game, or zone out, or go to the driving range, whatever it is. That's what we would do. God is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for His good pleasure because you could not please Him if He were not enabling it. That's the implication there. So when I'm wiped out at the end of a day, and I'm trying to get home just so I can relax, the Lord God Almighty through the presence of his indwelling spirit wants to enable me to show the self-giving, other-oriented love of Jesus to my family so that they'll know God is God and they won't go worshiping idols. <laughs> Do all things, verse 14, without murmuring and arguing. Ugh. <laughs> When we're wiped out at the end of the day, that's the easiest time to murmur and argue, isn't it? Man, I'm tired. It's been a long day. And now everybody wants me to fix something or put this toy back together or take the food out of the up, whatever it is. You want to know if you have self-interest in your heart? Look at what you complain about. When we complain, that is a magnifying glass on those places in our lives where we have carved out our own authority, lordship, where we are, have our own interest at heart and not others, and not Jesus. Do all things without murmuring and arguing so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. Paul is talking about holiness. He doesn't use the word holiness, but that's what blameless means. That's what shining without blemishes means. And you see what he's doing here. You've got to shine like stars in the world because they're not going to see self-giving other-oriented love if you don't show it to them. Right? Congress is not showing anybody self-giving other-oriented love. Right? I don't, 
Whichever side of the aisle you're on, nobody's doing self-giving love up there. The world will not show self-giving love. It only is shown if it's shown in the church. And it won't be shown if Christianity is one activity among many. It will only be shown if it is a whole life orientation. And it only happens, verse 16, if you hold fast to the word of life. The scriptures, the gospel. You want your life to be oriented towards Jesus? You better spend time reading the Word of God and listening to it preached, even if it's long-winded, <laughs> like today. Because it's life. You know, um, I took Jackson to a movie Friday. We talk about attention spans. He's four. The thing was, Incredibles 2, is almost two hours long after the previews. It's a kid's movie. It's a cartoon. It's two hours long. I couldn't believe how late it was when we got out. I see some nods. It's long, isn't it? He watched the whole thing. There were a couple places where it was a little, a little, little maybe a little much for a four-year-old, so he looked away. Little, but he wasn't losing interest. And we talk about how tension span for 15 minutes. We'll sit with things we care about all day long. I guarantee you nobody was complaining about the length of Auburn's game yesterday. Some folks might have been wishing we had a few more minutes. <laughs> we'll give all the time in the world to things that matter to us. But if the worship of the Almighty God goes more than 60 minutes, call the SPR chair. But if we're not willing to handle tough things, we're not a church. And we're not following Jesus because Jesus wants to take the things in our hearts that are not given to him and take them away so that we consistently, comprehensively, and all the time embody the beauty of his self-giving love. Not one activity among many, but the orientation of our whole life. So my question to wrap this one up, what needs to go? What is in my life that does not embody the mind of Christ? And whatever it is, maybe it's one thing, maybe it's 15 things. It needs to go. It has to go. Because it will kill us if it and it will destroy the people around us. So let's pray together. <laughs> and let's worship God. And let's surrender everything we've got to the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ.